today on EdgeFX. Apocalypse, the nuclear age, also looks very different when you see it from below. So you start to see nuclearization not as a future event, but as an infrastructure that's already producing apocalyptic outcomes for some people in some places. April Anson speaks with Jessica Hurley, assistant professor of English at George Mason University and author of Infrastructures of Apocalypse, American Literature and the Nuclear Complex. They discuss Professor Hurley's new book, The Bad Apocalypses of American Politics, and how Black, queer, indigenous, and Asian American futurelessness give an ethics of impossibility to apocalyptic storytelling. My name is Dr. April Anson. My name is Dr. Jessica Hurley. Right. I'm so honored and excited to be talking with you today, Dr. Hurley. Before we turn to your incredible book, I just want to briefly acknowledge that I'm speaking to you from the unceded territories of the Ipai, Tipai, and the Guenyo Kumeyaay peoples, who are the original inhabitants and continual caretakers of their homeland from what's currently called San Diego and Imperial Counties in California, to 60 miles south of the Mexican border for over 12,000 years. The Kumeyaay, together with the Tejana Odom peoples of the Sonoran Desert, have been in a fight to protect their territorial sovereignty, ancestral burial sites, and sacred places from the destruction of border wall construction. This is just one of their ongoing fights in a county that's home to more federally recognized tribes and the second highest level of biodiversity in the nation. And Dr. Hurley, your book, among other things, speaks to this convergence, the material intersections of indigenous sovereignty and environmental concerns. So I'd like to just begin by hearing you talk a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you came to this exigent work. April, thank you so much for having me and inviting me to have this conversation today. I'm calling in from Manahoek land in Northern Virginia, and I want to start by voicing my support for land back and decolonization initiatives across the continent. So yeah, my background is in literary studies. Um, I have undergrad and master's degrees in English. And it wasn't until I started my dissertation that I got really into interdisciplinary work in environmental studies, thanks mostly to ASLI, and science and technology studies, thanks to nuclear infrastructures becoming my object of study, and also in indigenous and decolonial studies, which kind of followed on from that focus on nuclear infrastructures as well. And I actually started this work in a project on King Lear that I did in a Shakespeare class with Margareta de Grazia at Penn. Um, I am by no means a Shakespearean, but I was fascinated with the play's eschatological construction. So the way that it's temporal suspension between the enunciation of a prophecy of justice and its fulfillment in the second coming so, um, comes to serve as a kind of absolute rejection of the unjust present. So in my final paper for that class, I ended up writing a comparative analysis of apocalyptic temporalities in Lear and in Marilyn Robinson's novel Gilead, which uses Lear as a very deliberate intertext. So what I found in Gilead and what I had been much more used to as the kind of default progressive temporality of liberal humanism was this very American exceptionalist assumption that because America had supposedly been built on promises of equality and justice in the past, that it would automatically produce that redemptive outcome in the future. So like the prophecy has been made, so it will necessarily be fulfilled. And this kind of redemptive temporal structure is, I think, a particularly American form of apocalypticism, and one that's actually both kind of counterintuitively futural, mm. because it bases everything on the prophesied future, 
and pretty conservative because the prophecy was made in the past. So it restricts the types of future that can be imagined as redemptive or even as good um, to the future prophesied by that past. Um, I deeply love Gilead as a novel and still love it. But it also taught me that this assumption that America will eventually and automatically become a space for equality and justice is a pretty dangerous and demotivating one. Redemption is not coming. And anyway, I'm kind of increasingly suspicious of redemption as a framework for thinking about justice as something that centers the institution causing harm and tries to frame that harm itself as something that can be kind of canceled out by a later action. And Lear is very different to that. I was shaken by the force of Lear's demand, which is not a kind of slow improvement towards something better or a built-in guarantee of human justice, but an absolute negation of the oppressive forces of social reproduction. It's full of these figures of absolute futurelessness, right? The um, kind of apocalyptic storm on the heath, the dead child, the hanged fool. I saw all of these as, a, as figures of an apocalyptic futurelessness that opens up a space for something else, for radical political demands, for something beyond the future as the endless reproduction of the same. And then I think the other thing I would add there is, you know, we're having this conversation only a couple of weeks after the passing of Lauren Balland. And I've been thinking a lot about how their work has shaped this project on a really foundational level. The question that this project started out from really was, what if our attachment to the future is one of cruel optimism? What if it harms us and limits our potential to flourish? And not just our attachment to a specific future, but to the future kind of per se. And this is particularly intense within my research field around nuclearization, because this is a space where scientific and military and state actors are always using the threat of apocalypse and the protection of the future as a way of getting what they want in the present and trying to bring their own desired future into being. But as Lauren always understood so powerfully, these kind of attachments are also deeply intimate and personal. Um, so I came to this work because temporality has always been something that excited me and thinking about real world applications of apocalypse has always had very clear stakes. But I think I stayed in it because that key question was one that I found to be useful and clarifying at multiple scales. It helped me understand America and environmentalism and nuclearization, and it helped me understand why a certain set of authors wanted to disattach us from the future as a primary orientation. And it also helped me to live my life, especially over the many years that I was applying for long-term academic employment when my own future in the profession was so intensely in doubt. So yeah, I don't want to give credit for the book to the academic job market necessarily. <laughs> <laughs> But I do think that as more and more people have a lived experience of precarity, the question of how we relate and attach to an imperiled future is becoming a motivating one for lots of people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, that's one of the many things your book does so well is really navigate the tricky spaces between, you know, the fallacy of authorial intention, let's say, and this, the status of individual identities in relation to state and science discourse. And I think that, you know, it makes a lot of sense to describe 
Berlant's work as a background to thinking about those tethers, especially as I think environmental humanities work is increasingly called to situate ourselves in relation to the work that we're producing and, and the work that we're reading. So I'm thinking, you know, let's say about your, about chapter one and your, your reading Atlas Shrugged <laughs> and thinking about, you know, this, uh, the specter of Rand that just will not stop. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, chapter one, especially lays a lot of theoretical ground, I think, for the for the book, especially as it establishes settler colonial masculine whiteness as having mm. a unique, if kind of threatened access to futurity. So it, as you're saying, it, pro it protects that access to futurity by casting all others into an apocalyptic futurelessness. Right. So how do you like what, you know, starting with a text like Atlas Shrugged, what does that afford you in relation to the these kind of nuanced conversations? Mm, that's a great question. And I certainly cannot recommend that anyone go out and read um, <laughs> Atlas Shrugged or necessarily spend years of their life writing about mm, it. Mm. Um, but I think one major reason that Atlas Shrugged is in here is because it, it felt important to me to include whiteness as a positionality being analyzed because that's my own positionality. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I was concerned about the prospect of being a white scholar writing solely about liberatory perspectives enacted by people of color mm. uh, or, you know, focusing on a white gay male author as if the gayness kind of occluded the whiteness. Mm. And, you know, while my positionality does intersect with some of the writers in the book, I felt like not including whiteness as a major analytic framework would be doing what um, Alexis Shotwell has recently described as disavowing your bad kin. Like mm. you can't actually disarticulate yourself from whiteness, so it's important not to act as if you can. Um, you, know, you, you can't only claim the aspects of your intersecting positions that you like. And whiteness is also, I think, as you're saying, a main character in each of the rest of the chapters. Mm -hmm. um, so just structurally, it was helpful for me to take the time in the first chapter to really unpack the complexities of nuclear whiteness so that those resonances could continue to play out in the rest of the book. And one of the reasons that I was particularly interested in Atlas Shrugged to fulfill this role is that it's an anti-nuclear, pro-genocidal white supremacy text, which is a bit counterintuitive when we think about how well nuclear weapons and genocidal white supremacy go together. I think this is what Arundhati Roy is getting at, right, when she describes nuclear weapons as the very heart of whiteness. So I think unpacking exactly how this form of white anti-nuclear politics is in itself white supremacist um, because it's basically saying, don't treat me as collectively vulnerable like all of those people of color, and then showing how easily this white anti-nuclear politics can so easily become pro-nuclear weapons when it's told that it gets to be the one in charge of them, not the one right. who's vulnerable to them. Um, both explains a lot about how the 20th century would play out in terms of white support for nuclearization, and allows us to see the whiteness nuclearization nexus as something that's multidimensional and fluid, not flat or static. Um, and that, of course, is useful because it opens up a capacity for change. Um, so maybe it's still possible for an anti-genocidal, anti-nuclear politics to emerge, um, not within whiteness as a racial formation, because I would say that that's inherently genocidal, but certainly within white people. And that's, you know, the um, your emphasis on whiteness in Rand's work as both the ideal 
and the practice by which the goal might be obtained, Mm. I think is one of the things that's so compelling about this chapter is that it articulates this kind of referent of the ideal and the way that practices enact or can, you know, fracture that ideal. So it does have, it's sort of intrinsic to it, it has that capacity for change or the excesses, not in a kind of the future of whiteness way that's trying to rescue whiteness, but articulate how white people can be working against those relationships or those ideals. Yeah, right. Like these are the attachments that are problematic. And here's what you would need to kind of disattach from in order to take a more beneficial role in the co-constituted dismantling of nuclear weapons and white supremacy that I increasingly suspect you can't have one without the other. Yeah, it makes me want to jump to a a later, later question that I had, which is just thinking about nuclear infrastructures and especially the nuclear doom bro cohort that (laughs) shall remain unspecifically named. (laughs) Um, But, you know, so much of that argument of their argument, as I see it, relies on exactly what you're articulating here, which is the threat of imminent doom, right, Mm -hmm. as a justification for the inherent risks that we know are yet to be avoidable in nuclear power. And so I'm wondering, like, how all through your book, I I was thinking about, I wonder how the nuclear threat of the atom bomb relates to this kind of nuclear power fetish that we see with the Doombro cohort, (laughs) for lack of a a more graceful way to describe them. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's definitely the kind of bad apocalypse that I'm talking about throughout the book, right? Which is that you raise this specter of an apocalyptic threat to make the thing that you're pushing be the only viable solution. And I suppose it's a slight expansion of the incredibly closed circuit of how that plays out um, earlier in the atomic era, where it's genuinely like we have the threat is of nuclear annihilation. The only solution to not have that apocalypse is to build more (laughs) nuclear weapons. Right, right. Which is always kind of alarming and horrifying. And now climate change has kind of taken over that role for nuclear power. It's very much this is you know, the only viable solution for seeing us through the next 50 years. But one of the things that I hope the book demonstrates is that there is absolutely no version of nuclear power that doesn't perpetuate and amplify the harms done by settler colonial racial capitalism. Right. Which, when the Doombros talk about it, I kind of secretly suspect is the point. Right. Let's <laughs> like, say they have attachments in that direction. They want to feel invulnerable. They want to feel in control of how this is playing out. But it's also something that we increasingly see in environmentalist movements, which I think is based on a very different set of attachments and a genuine kind of desire to help and fix things. But I think we need to acknowledge that trying to expect this infrastructure that is dispositioned to produce one set of outcomes to do anything else is kind of disavowing this basic truth. Mm. Aside from the fact that nuclear power is not even good at reducing carbon emissions, it's a very carbon intensive power supply. But this logic of necessary risk is literally a logic of human sacrifice. And nuclear infrastructures, I would say more than most, are incapable of producing any other outcome. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's this fascinating discussion going on in infrastructure studies at the moment 
about whether and how various colonial infrastructures might be repurposed for other ends. So Winona LeDuc and Deborah Cowan talk about this in Beyond the Indigo Infrastructure and do this really interesting thought experiment about a decolonized, electrified version of the railway. But I honestly think that nuclear power might be the limit case here. There's just no way of doing it without great and permanent human and environmental harm. And giving some people the power to inflict that harm on the present and the future, it just seems like there's no way of doing that that isn't kind of profoundly and inherently unjust and can't be recuperated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it feels like the, a deep irony that in your description of nuclear infrastructure as the very heart of whiteness in your citation of Arundhati Roy and having the power to affect without being affected, there's a deep irony there when we consider how you're describing nuclear as the limit case for this fantasy of immunity that, you know, unfortunately to be proven wrong means complete annihilation. (laughs) Yeah. And you can see why it's so appealing, right? Who doesn't want that? (laughs) Especially at times when you feel especially vulnerable. I feel like we've been living this very much in the pandemic. There's, of course, a desire for invulnerability at times when you're afraid. And that is what is so compelling in your methodology and your archive in this book is the emphasis that you place on futurelessness as a kind of Mm. transfiguration, thinking especially in chapter two and three and your engagement with queer theory and queer eco-criticism that this futurelessness that you see that you're reading in these authors is both a kind of transfiguration, a reorientation. You write that it's not an obliteration of possibility, but as a place to stand, a place where we might yet construct a world in which to live, acknowledging the contingency of our time so that we can refuse the world's exigencies towards profit and growth without, you know, God or revolution, right? Without waiting, you know, it's this sort of perpetual waiting. That's a kind of esoteric place to inhabit, but it's also an orientation that your chapters really ground profoundly in place, like Harlem. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about how you see futurelessness as at once unfixing, but also a different form of rooting in place and responsibility to particular places and spaces. Yeah, so chapter two was where I first came to understand that I had thought that I was writing about time, but in fact, I was also writing about place. And in fact, that when writing about America, there's no way to write about apocalyptic time in particular without writing about space and vice versa. So for a long time, this chapter about civil defense and black apocalypticism began with eight long, detailed pages about Cristobal Colón, a.k.a. Christopher Columbus, which really only got cut in a very late draft. (laughs) You're welcome. So I, you know, I was trying to understand what it meant to think of a city or a space as apocalyptic, particularly in this colonized continent. And to answer that question, I ended up back with Colón, who, upon arriving here in 1492, had immediately framed the New World as the New Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was a pretty big switch in standard explorer-colonizer theology, because throughout the Middle Ages, new places had generally been framed as the Lost Eden and not the New Jerusalem. So what this does is collapse space and time into a single kind of geographic apocalyptic space-time. So the prophesied apocalyptic New Jerusalem is no longer something that you wait for in time, it's something that you go to in space. 
And this spatializes the entire white redemption story that is the Christian apocalypse narrative. So when you walk the ground of the new world, you're literally walking through that narrative. And this brings a whole bunch of terrible ideas with it, of course. You know, you need to clear the indigenous people out because they have been put there by the devil to stop the New Jerusalem from coming into being, was Cotton Mather's take. Or we're helping to bring the New Jerusalem into being by bringing enslaved people here and converting them to Christianity, was a whole bunch of slave owners' takes. And eventually this becomes the basic structure subtending American exceptionalism, where the US is eventually going to perfect itself into heaven on earth and bring about the second coming. So what this ends up meaning, which is more of what's in the book with a bit less <laughs> is that so many of these seemingly secular decisions of the nuclear age are in fact based in these wild Book of Revelations logics. You know, build your city on a hill in the suburbs to help secure the new Jerusalem in the event of nuclear war and leave the black, Jewish, queer, poor people in the city as atomic bait because they're only standing in the way of the New Jerusalem. You know, the apocalyptic logic that we tend to think of as something happening in time becomes a spatial logic that makes certain spatial arrangements make instinctive sense to white Christian decision makers, which is to say, of course, very nearly all of them. So race and indigeneity especially get coded into the landscape, with the reservation and the urban center in particular becoming spaces marked by futurelessness, while the suburbs get coded as spaces of white futurity and redemption. And this is why I really love the Ralph Ellison line that I end chapter two with, Harlem is nowhere. So on the surface, this seems like a bad thing, right? Like something that wouldn't allow for a kind of passionate inhabitation of space. We automatically think, of course, it's better to be somewhere than nowhere. But I think the way that you're thinking about fixity and the problematics of being fixed in space and in narrative is really spot on here. You know, America seeks to fix people in place so that it can control their futures, the way that they move through space-time. And what Baldwin and Delaney and Ellison all do is compose a kind of fugitivity in space that seeks to disrupt this fixity of fate, that if we think about everything as space-time, then an inhabitation of space that you do differently is a way of disrupting the narrative that you're written into, and vice versa. So they're all interested in these kind of disorienting spaces, spaces without the physical or temporal or racial coordinates that make the white world make sense. And it's a particular genre of black speculation, I think, that's not often included in sci-fi per se, but is doing that work of world unmaking. So when Ellison says that Harlem is nowhere, he's evoking a black space that can't be pinned down, that can't be locked into a particular ending, whether that ending is nuclear or other forms of genocide. And futurelessness is the temporal kind of equivalent or side of this moment of refusal to cohere into sense to be fixed into place. So Delaney's novel Dahlgren, which is one of the main texts of this chapter, is a circular novel. The end sentence is the first half of the first sentence with some overlap. Mm. It's literally futurelessness. It's literally futureless at the kind of narrative scale. And it's also set in a city whose streets move every night. So there's literally no way to get your bearings in space or time that this city is somewhere and nowhere at the same time. And because of this, no one knows what's going to happen. And if the whole world is infrastructured to produce your individual and collective immiseration and death, is there anything better than not knowing what's going to happen? Whoa. Um, so that, I think, is the space of futurelessness as something that can open up to radical 
politics. And my hope is that this can allow for the construction of communities that are oriented towards collective flourishing, but it doesn't come with guarantees. All I know is that the futures that we have now don't allow for that. So we need these moments of futurelessness to clear a spatio-temporal space where they might come into being. Oh, that, that, um, oh my gosh, I just have so many, <laughs> so many thoughts. That was such a beautiful tour through those writers and the description of this Harlem is nowhere and this disorienting kind of circularity of the overlap of the first and, and last sentence of that work feels like a, a really precise counter distinction to what you're describing as the kind of closed circuit of the bad apocalypse, mm -hmm. right? It's kind of tautology is meant to produce fixity, to produce no other option. Yep. And here on the kind of very, very bland surface, you have a, a similar self-referential system, but instead of it arguing for a kind of whiteness that is everywhere and therefore we are all fixed in relation, it's arguing Harlem is nowhere, and so the possibilities are are endless. <laughs> I just think that that is such a profound and inspiring kind of implied counter-distinction in, in your work, especially in that chapter. What you're saying makes me think of the emphasis on spatiality that emerges in throughout the entire book, this kind of infrastructure as both metaphor and material. I think it provides a kind of orientation to space that refuses the grid, but offers a materiality that to what like Kristen Simmons concept of settler atmospherics. Mm. That there is a geographic correlate that you're describing. The implotment that you talk about throughout the book being both narrative and infrastructure. How do you see this kind of fugitivity in relation to that? Partly what it boils down to, right, is how do we imagine liberation? How do we imagine freedom? To get back to the language of attachment, how do we maintain an attachment to freedom in a world that is increasingly fixed, locked down, surveilled, infrastructured, right? And against all of the temptations of insecurity and precarity that lead us, especially if you're acculturated into whiteness, to follow that sense of like, oh, I just need to lock things down more and then I'll achieve security. I need to attach myself to these systems that promise to ensure my survival. Yeah, what you're saying is a real link to what you talk about in chapter two and three, this ethics of possibility. What I hear you saying is that, you know, that our attachments are conditioned to view whiteness as a kind of ethic of possibility, mm. right? That it promises protection from risk or even profit from the risk of damage. As you describe ethics of possibilities, argument that often stands for an expanded sense of social potential, a commitment to improving the future through hope and action. And whiteness can really offer that, or at least says it offers that. And instead, you really lay out an ethics of impossibility. So thinking with Black, queer, Indigenous, disabled, and other subjects marked as futureless, and the ways that you describe the ethics of impossibility really resonate with, as I see it, work in queer eco-criticism. Mm -hmm. Like Sarah Enzer's work building on Lee Edelman's or in conversation with Lee Edelman's to describe what she calls spinster ecology. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering how you see the ethics of impossibility that you describe 
aligning with work like Enzor's or Nicole Seymour's and um, the directions that you see queer eco-criticism going more broadly in relation to anti-racist and anti-colonial work? Yeah, this is a great question. And I think, you know, one of the things that or the pitfalls I was constantly trying to avoid in this project was that kind of neoliberal sense of, oh, we've expanded the possibilities available, right? right? Like all, all of this pain and damage is worthwhile if it can just flip around into now there are more possibilities available, which is still a way of trying to lock down and secure the future right? into this limited and limiting set of possibilities. So with the ethics of impossibility, I was trying to push beyond that, right? Um, to kind of, this might be a terrible metaphor, but can you kind of hack your way through one side of the dialectic to open up the other side? Mm. That's what I was going for. Like, what are the futures that we can't imagine and that have been socially and culturally constructed as unimaginable? Mm-hmm. Um, and that whenever we think we see a range of possibilities Can we keep that kind of flip side in our awareness to remind us that what we can imagine is not all there is to try and avoid that kind of self-re-limiting of the imagination? And I'm really glad that you connected this to Sarah Ensor's work because I think she's just brilliant. Mm -hmm. I love her work (laughs) so much. Yes. And um, I didn't actually come across her writing until the book was very nearly finished. So it's not as baked into it as it would have been otherwise. But I do think that we're both trying to name an approach and theorize alternatives to a specific contemporary problem that we might call something like the regulatory capture of ethics, um, Mm. including environmental ethics by the future. So environmentalism and elsewhere, including in what Apadurai calls the ethics of possibility, ethics is understood within the framework of outcomes. So what is the outcome that we see as ethically good? And then we backformate that to find out how we should act in the present, right? Like, how are we going to bring about this future? But these ethical frameworks produce their own problems. So for me, once we understand that the futures that we're capable of imagining are limited, it means that using those imagined possibilities to shape our ethics in the present is going to produce a really stunted range of decisions. For Sarah, I think it's that this intentional directed investment in a specific outcome is premised on a kind of heroic, masterful, dominating, individualist approach to both the environment and the future that queer theory would steer us away from. So if you look at our work together, What I hope you would take away from it is that ethics don't have to be based on plausible outcomes. This might be my most Derridian take. (laughs) And they don't have to be successful at scale to be meaningful. Ethics shouldn't be instrumental. And that's the aspect of it that we seem to have lost. you're, You're meant to act ethically based on principles and commitments not outcomes. And Sarah's vision of a cruising environmentalism that's based on these fleeting moments of encounter and care that everything in the world is conceivably something that you could love. That's absolutely an example of what an environmental ethics of impossibility or a futurity might look like. Oh, that's such a beautiful um, summary of her work and your works in relation to it. She's theorizing in counterdistinction to what Le Paperson describes in A Third University as possible, that only the bad guys build things that last forever. <laughs> and it kind of, kind of like her work is kind of premised on that. And in some ways, the, you know, the nuclear imagination is exactly that. 
right? It's sort of the most obvious example of building things that last forever. The scale of nuclear fallout is in some ways beyond our imagination, right? Mm -hmm. And that's why it's so hard, I think, to fight against some of its logics at some point, because from one perspective, it seems completely obvious that permanently polluting a place and making it less inhabitable for humans and non-human animals is bad. But from the perspective of, I want to build something that lasts forever, and my main priority in life is to leave a mark on the world, well, that actually does that kind of well. Right, right. Yeah, it does really testify to the exigency of queer theory for conceptualizing the future and, and queer theory and, and like practice as chapter three really speaks to so powerfully. Can you talk about this kind of what you call retro containment in that chapter? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So chapter three turned out to be the exact obverse of chapter two in that I was trying to write a chapter about a spatial thing that then transformed into a temporal <laughs> thing. So I had this amazing plan for the chapter before I'd really read anything about it or done any work on it. You know, it's the dissertation prospectus thing where you have to write these very detailed chapter descriptions on work you haven't done yet. Mm -hmm. um, it was going to be called Barrier Methods. It was about these spatial fantasies of exclusion that both the condom and the strategic defense initiative are based Oof. on, right? That you, that you can put a kind of perfect barrier around either the nation state or your sexual self and make your it completely invulnerable. Indeed. <laughs> um, but what I found when I actually started researching it was that everyone only ever conceptualized these barrier methods as full of holes, kind of literally that the anxieties were all about. Actually, lasers in space are not capable of keeping out every single atomic missile that might fly through the air at us. And yeah, but are condoms really going to save us against mm. HIV? Just nothing but anxieties about this kind of failure of spatial containment, which becomes particularly interesting when you connect it to some of the work that's been done on the earlier Cold War period, where it's all about containment, right? There's this building on Alan Nadell's work on containment culture, that in the 50s, you have this sense that containment is much more possible, or at least is something that we should you know, strongly try to bring about. By the 80s, and just infrastructurally, things are really different. There's so many more nuclear weapons. There's really no sense that you could protect the nation in this way. So what I see happening there is that it stops being a spatial imaginary and starts being a temporal imaginary, which is what I call retro containment, that it secularizes the prophecy and fulfillment structure that America kind of likes to think makes it super secure in terms of automatically bringing about the good outcome. And it makes the 1950s kind of the moment of prophecy. <laughs> and says, all right, if we in the 80s can suture time back around and restore ourselves through this kind of national scale nostalgia to the 1950s, then it can somehow give us a sense of security that we're lacking in spatial containment methods. So it becomes this kind of closed temporal loop that becomes understood as a kind of method of national security in weird ways. Like we wouldn't think that time could save us. But, you know, neoconservative 80s Reagan people were very convinced of this. They were really like, it all kind of went wrong in the 50s. 
when we went for a containment strategy rather than a rollback strategy. Rollback really comes into play in the 80s when Weinberger is like, look, we did it all wrong. <laughs> we can't contain them. We have to actively roll back communism. So you get this sense that if you break with that very kind of heteronormative, highly militarized temporality and set those social assumptions that come with that temporality, that getting back to the 50s is what we definitely should be doing, both culturally and politically, that's when you become like a threat to national security. And that is the position that queerness comes to inhabit in that time, that it's seen as a threat to a containment that has become temporal rather than spatial. Yeah, that clarifies a couple of things from my reading of that chapter. And I think really nicely connects to what you're doing in, in chapter four with reading the Department of Energy documents. It feels like you're describing a sort of speculative fiction at the core of U.S. realism. <laughs> that you describe as realism being equivalent to probability modeling. So thinking, you know, the ways that emergency authorizations enable private consultation or risk management. They authorize a kind of form of authoritative foresight. And your reading of Almanac of the Dead suggests that realism can do other things, right? That there's some part of that that is unable to be captured by probability modeling. So I'm wondering, can you give me a sense of what comes out of your reading of Department of Energy documents alongside a work like Almanac of the Dead? Yeah, so I feel like it's a truism about power, and especially the kind of power active in authoritarian spectrum states, of which I think we're one, that it's powerful and quasi all-knowing, but also ignorant. And I mean ignorant in the sense that my family always used it, which is <laughs> you don't lack information, but you're unwilling to think and know and, ima and imagine certain things, right? A kind of a willed ignorance. Amour's work shows this really well. She talks about the state moving from thinking and planning around the things that are most plausible to starting to think and plan around remote possibilities, right? These kind of low probability, high impact events like 9-11. And you can hear the state in these documents going, ah, oh, yeah, our imagination is so crazy. <laughs> I imagine this wild combination of a terrorist attack and an infrastructure failure. Did a whole bunch of scenario planning based on it. Look at me imagining things that are possible, but so unlikely. And you definitely see a lot of that in the um, Department of Energy archives that I look at in chapter four, where I really thought that as a literary theorist, you know, what was I going to find in these documents? What was I going to bring <laughs> to these documents? What could my training in fiction allow me to see? And then, you know, you spend all of this time, you know, in, in chapter three, looking at how this completely fictional technology becomes a major obstacle in actual arms control negotiations <laughs> in the 80s, because Reagan is refusing to give up something that doesn't even exist, that is actually just a science fiction weapon. And then all of this nuclear waste storage stuff, it's not just that truth is stranger than fiction, although if you try to novelize some of these conversations, I think you would probably get called out for implausibility. It's that what becomes the scientific and legal truth is built on fiction, like literally. So at the point where you have people writing fictional descriptions of the future, 
assigning numerical values to them, and then using those numbers to perform probability calculations that take on the weight of fact for scientific and legal purposes, like where would you even start to draw the distinction between fiction and nonfiction? Right. So in each instance, it's kind of inter interesting and I would say illuminating to see how this dance between fiction and nonfiction is playing out and how fiction is being used to construct certain kinds of fact within a genre that considers itself non-fictional. But at a certain point, it means you can no longer describe it in these terms of, you know, there's probability modeling, which is non-fictional right. on one side, and then novels on the other side. So part of it is just kind of tricky, because as a literary scholar, when you lose the distinction between fiction and non-fiction, where even are you? And, you know, working with futures modeling is always going to kind of put you in that position. It's a highly fictional genre. And I think Lindsay Thomas is really brilliant on this in her book, Training for Catastrophe, that just came out. But there's obviously also like a highly ideological and practical component of this as well, because climate modeling reports and predictions that are much more grounded in science and have a good deal of scientific consensus behind them often get dismissed with a kind of, well, that's just one imagined story about how things might go. No one really knows. A wave of the hand. So perhaps we could say that fiction becomes nonfiction as a function of power. And I think that's what Silco is getting at in Almanac of the Dead, that she is really concerned with how states think about the future and the kind of the state fictions of how things are probable or likely to go versus what that looks like from a different perspective. So what Silco's work shows us is that when the state looks at the future, it's still only capable of seeing like a state. And in the US, one of the defining features of seeing like a state is being completely unable to imagine a world in which the settler colonial United States doesn't exist. Right? Like This is not just an improbable future to them, but an impossible future. You will not see it in the, I'm so crazy, <laughs> versions of future planning. And what Silco does in Almanac of the Dead that's so powerful is to retell the entire history of North America from an indigenous people's perspective. And this is a perspective that doesn't see like a state, so it can see other things. This perspective goes back tens of thousands of years and imagines forwards tens of thousands of years. And within this perspective, the idea that the settler colonial US has always been here and will always be here is just absolutely laughable. You know, the settler colony in North America is a blip in this historical timescale and it's clearly unsustainable and hell-bent on bringing about its own destruction. So what you get as a reader is this slowly growing realization that the assumptions that the settler state is making about its own continuity are deeply, profoundly improbable. This is a, a key example of the kind of transfiguration that I'm talking about, this moment of a kind of an epiphany, I guess, to go fully modernist, that the way that you have conceptualized the world is not the way the world is. We could call it a revolution in consciousness. But Silco shows us that the world that the state is analyzing in its probability models is totalizing and self-enclosed, but also tiny and really ignorant about the whole planet that it's part of, not to mention the place where it actually is. So Silco gives us this kind of zoom out function for probability and time. And it's really, really effective in challenging that settler colonial claim to totality and totality as a form of realism that probability modeling relies on. It also 
strikes me that that novel in particular, probably the whole of her work, is offering to settler colonial studies even an intervention that, you know, the the kind of oft-quoted settler colonialism is a structure, not an event. It's built on indigenous erasure, right? Its goal is to replace the native following Patrick Wolfe. Here, what I hear you drawing out of Almanac of the Dead, even in just your description, it's hell-bent on bringing about its own destruction, is the description from settler colonial studies about it being a structure, not an event, that aims to replace the native is actually a description of seeing like a state. It's not actually a description of the structure of settler colonialism, which indeed, as you describe, is hell-bent on bringing about its own destruction. Yeah, that's a great reframing. You you did it. I'm just I'm just mirroring back to you your brilliance because I think and and Silco's brilliance in that novel's profundity. Um, yeah, all I'm doing is speaking to Silco's brilliance. Yes. <laughs> well, and I think too that gives us a way to think about what, for instance, Dan Hosang and Joe Lowndes describe in their new book, Patriots, Parasites, and Producers. Something um, those three words maybe not in that order. And they describe how, you know, we're in an era where whiteness no longer needs white people, right? That we see people of color, for instance, leading movements like the Proud Boys, etc. But what this ethics of impossibility that you give us, that truth that Hosang and Lowndes describe is built in. The idea that whiteness would only correlate to phenotype is part of that kind of containment of the white imaginary. But the ethics of impossibility gives us a way to both anticipate, you know, this kind of flexibility of whiteness and the spaces outside of that, right? That it is describing a system that's bent on its own destruction. It's not describing, first and foremost, an identity category, for instance. Yeah, this is very much aligned with Rand. Right, right. Yeah, she is also very fond of the language of parasites. Yes. I, I haven't read that book, but now I'm very curious to see if they take her up at all. But A, she was really like, anyone can become white if they sign up for the basic premises, but also that anyone can be expelled from whiteness Mm -hmm. um, and the privileges of whiteness if they don't kind of live up to the demands for perfect rationality and constant productivity, etc. But yeah, she was really like, look, I can keep white supremacy going with like 900 people. (laughs) Like she gets rid of the whole continent. Yes. Yes. And, and this is, you know, this is a testament to, I think, your, your methodology that it allows us to see or it helps us to see the ways that the language that she deploys, the imagination that she deploys is a kind of evergreen set of tropes that just get, get moved forward. And when we think, you know, we're, we're so far away from the overt racism of, of a metaphor like parasites, and yet we saw it with COVID-19 and continue to see it. Oh, yeah. And, you know, she has like a literal afterlife in a way that many of the people that we study don't, because there's literally an institute that is pretty well funded that is dedicated to, for instance, they send out hundreds and thousands of copies of Atlas Shrugged every year to schools and prisons. You know, any kind of institutional book buying will be offered extremely cheap slash zero cost copies of Atlas Shrugged by the Objectivist Institute. So it's not even just, ah, yes, her ideas are so compelling that Rand Paul is still really into them and making all of his (laughs) staffers read Atlas Shrugged. It's that 
she is the kind of Bible of a certain strand of Tea Party, far-right ultra-conservatism slash libertarianism, and that that continuing influence has been built. There's a $10,000 Ayn Rand essay prize every year. Oh, my God. For students. I really thought I was going to make my fortune with it as a graduate student. I checked if it could still be when you were in graduate school. <laughs> Obviously, by the time I was done writing, it was obvious that I would not be winning prizes. From <laughs> but what your those examples are so indicative of the infrastructure that constantly needs to be shored up mm-hmm. and expanded and, you know, painted with a fresh coat of, of whiteness in whatever way, that these are not everlasting certainties that are guaranteed a legacy, but those legacies have to be created and recreated. And that, you know, speaks to the kind of anxiety that attends the epistemologies that you're describing. Yeah, it's interesting, I think, to think about Rand as a kind of race theorist of our time. Yeah. Someone who actually has become more relevant in the last 15 years or so, not just because of the rise of the Tea Party and everything that's followed on from that, but also because whiteness is being disattached from phenotype in kind of interesting and horrifying ways, which can be both bad and potentially good, right? <laughs> like <laughs> if you're someone whose mission is to try and disarticulate from whiteness wherever possible. Right. This also suggests that that is to some degree a thing that you can work towards. Yeah, it also testifies to the ways that we actually cannot discuss any formation of racial categories outside of economics, right? Mm -hmm. And that's a kind of pithy way to say it, but there's no way to understand the changing definition of whiteness through time unless we talk about capitalism and market economies and these kind of entanglements. And I feel like entanglements is maybe even a generous way to, an imprecise way to describe it. But I'm thinking about the end of your book Mm. and that you end with a discussion of quantum superposition and entanglements. And I'm wondering what led you to that, that kind of concluding universe <laughs> um, of, of concepts. And then, and like, as you, you know, finish the book and have, have now had a bit of time away, what concepts are still kind of entangling you from this project? I think I ended up with entanglement, A, because there's always this question, right, of what do you do with a conclusion? <laughs> that's supposed to open out in some way. And I had raised the question of ethics in the introduction that then doesn't get fully thought through in the chapters. And I was interested in coming back around to that and kind of writing from a more presentist position, you know, as someone who's just spent six, seven years working on this book, what does it mean to be alive and thinking about nuclear histories today? And I find entanglement a really useful way of thinking about that because it implies a certain kind of connection, which implies a certain kind of responsibility, that if we think of ourselves as people who are still entangled with the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki as an ongoing event, it's ethically and morally empowering in the sense that it puts you in a position of ethical and moral responsibility to that history and to that event. And that's something that I think Ruth Zeki gets at so kind of spectacular. 
particularly in A Tale for the Time Being, which is the, the key text in that conclusion, but that, you know, this question of what we do with these histories of violence is so dispiriting. <laughs> at times right Mm -hmm. all of these terrible things have happened in the past and it's over and there's nothing i can do about it is really different from the kind of temporality of quantum entanglement which says as long as you're still looking at it the event is still going that it is literally possible to change the outcome of this event even in terms of just what it will have meant right like Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. those bombings mean and are something different if they are the inauguration of a kind of endless spiral of immiseration through nuclear politics and nuclear infrastructures than if there's a stretch of immiseration, but then we completely abolish nuclear weapons. Right. Right. Like it actually changes the meaning of that earlier event. So I, yeah, I wanted to do something that was a bit more abstract, but that was still tied into a kind of practical politics, this sense of all right, what are we called on to do if we accept that all of this is true? And it's just fun to take something really kind of wildly abstract and hard to wrap your head around like quantum entanglement and then try and turn it into a practical ethics. (laughs) (laughs) And in terms of ongoing questions and entanglements, there are so many. One big lingering question is how my theorization relates to Afro-pessimism. Yes, right. And I think I'm enough steps removed that I didn't need to answer the question to write the book. (laughs) Because Afro-pessimism is fundamentally about ontology, where I'm thinking about temporality. Mm-hmm. But I teach Afro-pessimism in my environmental humanities class, so the question keeps coming back around. Yeah, if I had two months with nothing else to do, I would love to sit down and figure that out. Mm-hmm. I would also really so much enjoy if someone else answered that question for me. Yes. Which is the great thing about having published the book. Maybe one day someone will. And I'm also writing a new piece this summer about the salty biz, because I felt so deeply entangled with that book when I was theorizing this radical politics of futurelessness. But then it only comes in kind of briefly, if importantly, in the introduction. So yeah, it's felt really luxurious to be able to go back to that one entanglement and give myself the time to spend more time in it. But there must be a hundred paragraphs in the book that could spin out to be a chapter of their own. Agreed. (laughs) I'm excited for all of those chapters, whether you write them or inspire (laughs) someone else to do so. Yeah, I think when you're talking about these rather abstract concepts like quantum entanglement. It really reminded me of this a talk that I just last week attended with David True when he was talking about his recent Atlantic article about arguing for why we should and indeed must give control of national parks back to Native peoples mm-hmm. whose lands they are superimposed, right? And he made this comment that I thought just thought was so brilliant. He said the Atlantic had run responses to his article and also his response to those responses. Mm-hmm. And one of the, of course, common complaints is Native people lost. They just need to get over it. <laughs> and he said, well, it's not over for Native people. So if you think it's over, we gladly receive your concession. <laughs> and I just thought that was such a brilliant reframing of exactly what you're talking about, about you know this predetermined future, right? That is just taken for granted in a kind mm-hmm. of you know white epistemology. Yeah. And the ways that engaging with indigenous imaginations, black and queer imaginations, allow us to see beyond these kind of conscripted implotments, essentially, that you describe. Yeah, that means it makes me think about Tiffany Lefabo King has this awesome critique of the settler colonialism as a structure, not an event line in the Black Shoals, which rocked my world. 
which is basically that if we treat it as a structure, then we treat it as something fixed yes. and therefore kind of unchangeable, which is very much going back to that kind of gridded understanding of the world where everything is kind of fixed in place that's so central to white settler colonialism in North America. And that looks very different if you're like, yes, and what is a structure but an ongoing event? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And populated by a series of events that it can claim as its pillars. Mm -hmm. But then if you recast it as also an event, it becomes looser, mm. right? Like it can still change. That's the point. It's not something that just exists. It's something that is consistently bringing itself into being and therefore could be derailed. Like the concession that could lie at the end of that narrative would change the entire sense retroactively of what that structure was. Yes. It can still be transfigured in that way. Yes. Oh, that's such a powerful point and makes me want to add an addendum to my resilience article that cites you at length. <laughs> this is the worst that's thing about really... publishing. Oh, Lord. And how? <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. I also want to ask you about your concept, hotspot aesthetics, which I just think is so compelling. I've been thinking with it since I read your words. And would you mind giving us just a, an overview of that concept and how it works in your in your book? Yeah, sure. So um, the idea of hotspotter aesthetics comes from a couple of deep frustrations, basically with canon formation. So when I first started reading about Apocalypse for my dissertation, the most recent critical wave of work on the topic at that time was all about this sense of like, post-apocalyptic anime in mostly works by straight white men after 1945. So, and the general argument that this produced was all about how the traumas of World War II had led to this overarching sense of cultural PTSD and a sense that the big politics are all behind us and now we're living after the end, to quote the title of James Burgess' book. So I had two problems with this. <laughs> Firstly, I found it pretty problematic to universalize the idea of trauma in this way. Mm. Um, so one thing that's usually contained within the list of traumatic events is the American atomic bombing of Japan, for instance. And it seemed unfortunate to me to suggest that white Americans are going to be traumatized in the same way as the people that it happened to. Right. And the second was that this sense of the political or a kind of post-political end of history is so clearly a kind of unmarked whiteness, straightness, maleness, able-bodiedness in action, since literally everyone else spent the second half of the 20th century engaged in fervent political struggle. So when I first wrote the proposal for this project, the basic principle was apocalypse by people who were experiencing genuinely apocalyptic shit. Mm -hmm. And it was this trying to find an alternative to the existing apocalypse canon that actually led me to nuclear infrastructures. This wasn't originally a nuclear studies project at all. But what I found in these texts by minoritized authors writing about real world apocalypse was a shared attentiveness to an interest in the way that the world was being reshaped by nuclear infrastructures to produce futurelessness for minority populations in ways that were enmeshed with the interlocking apocalypses of racial slavery and oppression, the AIDS epidemic, and the long genocide of indigenous people. And this despite the fact that none of these authors, like Baldwin, Delaney, Kushner, Silko, are primarily thought of as nuclear writers. So with the exception of Silko's ceremony, you won't find them in the existing work on nuclear literature. 
which tends towards the Thomas Pynchon, Don DeLillo, Richard Powers end of things. And so perhaps unsurprisingly, the critical work that focuses on these straight white men tends to treat nuclear apocalypse as something that we're waiting for that hasn't happened yet. But like apocalypse, the nuclear age also looks very different when you see it from below. So you start to see nuclearization not as a future event, but as an infrastructure that's already producing apocalyptic outcomes for some people in some places. And this is what I'm trying to get at with this concept of hotspotter aesthetics. I take the term hotspotter from Shiloh Krupar, who uses it to describe subject positions that are particularly exposed to nuclear harm and thus have a particular kind of knowledge about it. So hotspotter aesthetics, like the kind of experiments with implotment that we've been talking about are the kinds of art about nuclearization that get made from these subject positions in contrast to the more kind of distance thought experiments that get produced in the more traditional nuclear canon. So I don't think that futurelessness or the kind of futurelessness that I'm analyzing is the only form that hotspotter aesthetics can take. My hope is that this is a piece of shorthand vocabulary that will expand the range of what and who we think about when we think about nuclear culture. Mm. And apocalyptic writers. And apocalyptic writers. Mm. Yes. Yes. Thank you for that. Well, any last words that you want to leave us with after just a series of brilliances that we've been able to be a part of? What I would hope that people can take away from all of this, especially now, like I'm having one of those days where it's very difficult to conceptualize a future and it doesn't feel good in the way that maybe I might suggest it could in the book. Mm -hmm. But I hope that one thing that people take from this is that they can stop demanding hope from other people and from themselves that I hope that the book can help people not to kind of automatically assume that losing hope is a loss of political commitment. And I hope that being able to think about other sources of political commitment than the future will help people personally to live through times of hopelessness and despair and precarity. You know, feeling hopeless is bad enough and you shouldn't have to feel like it's a political and ethical failure too. We get to stand in these spaces of futurelessness and it might not feel good, but it might take us somewhere else. Mm, yeah, I'll be revisiting that <laughs> a lot. And I really, gosh, thank you for the gift of your your words and your reflection on your book and your book itself is just such a, a rich, rich, rich offering to environmental humanities and many other scholarly and, and activist communities. I've reread it two and maybe even two and a half times now. And every time I pick out something wholly new, which is just a testament to you. Your commitments to your ideas and the life of that outside of, you know, the narrow pages of the book. So as always, Dr. Hurley, it has been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. I'm, I'm so grateful for your time and your brilliance. Again, I, I can't say it enough. I'm so honored. Thank you. That was April Anson and Jessica Hurley in conversation. April Anson is an assistant professor of public humanities at San Diego State University, where she serves as core faculty for the Institute for Ethics and Public Policy and affiliate faculty in American Indian Studies. Jessica Hurley is an assistant professor of English at George Mason University and author of Infrastructures of Apocalypse, American Literature and the Nuclear Complex, published by the University of Minnesota Press in 2020. 
You've been listening to Edge Effects, a production of CHE, the Center for Culture, History, and Environment in the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This episode was produced by Addie Hopes and me, Justin Huckleberry. The music you're hearing is by Julian Lynch. You can get all of our episodes sent straight to your computer or mobile device by subscribing to Edge Effects wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please leave us a rating and review or tell a friend about it. That really helps connect us with new listeners. You can follow us on Twitter at EdgeEffectsMag. And as always, keep up with the steady flow of great content about cultural and environmental change across the full sweep of human history at edgeeffects.net.